Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. Net zero emissions. Carbon neutral. Paris Agreement. Reducing our carbon footprint. 2050. That's not a real ad, but it might sound a little like one. It seems like everywhere you look or listen, there are corporations that want you to know how hard they're working to fight climate change. Not everyone seems to believe all of them. Today I'm proud to rise and introduce a bill that will make illegal the false advertising by the oil and gas industry. The big tobacco moment has finally arrived for big oil. NDP MP Charlie Angus introduced a private member's bill just a few days ago. The proposed Fossil Fuel Advertising Act, it's intended, he says, to halt the misleading advertising and promotion of fossil fuels in Canada. And it's the latest effort to hold businesses accountable for the environmental claims they make. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Today, we're talking about advertising, how it can contribute to the climate crisis, and what can be done about it. But we're also going to take a close look at the ways marketing can be used as a force for change, and at messages that can spur people to action. We've got to solve this problem because our kids deserve a good future, and we've got to solve it because it's an urgent generational issue. Okay, let's get into it. They knew all along they were destabilizing our climate, putting our planet in a crisis from which we may not be able to recover. And now that the planet is on fire, they're shifting their propaganda with false claims of producing cleaner products claiming they can be part of the climate solution. That's like Benson and Hedges telling you that they can help end lung cancer. And that's MP Charlie Angus again. If his bill passes, it would prohibit, quote, false, misleading or deceptive fossil fuel advertising. The bill also seeks to outlaw ads that suggest that fossil fuels or the fossil fuel industry would, quote, lead to positive outcomes in relation to the environment, the health of Canadians, reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, or the Canadian or global economy. Now, many doctors and nurses support the proposed legislation, including Dr. Sejal Bargava. She sees the impacts of climate change on the health of the people who come to her inner-city family medicine clinic in Ottawa. Climate change is one of the biggest risk factor amplifiers when it comes to health. Those who are most vulnerable are those who don't have the means to adapt. So this summer there was wildfire smoke in the air and the amount of people that came in being like, I can't breathe because I don't have access to clean air. Let's say they're unhoused or you know they're living on the streets or their condo unit is a low income housing unit where they don't have access to like air filtration systems and they're starting to wheeze and their kids are starting to wheeze. Now, Dr. Bargava is a board member of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. We're asking the federal government to actually legislate that this kind of advertising would no longer be allowed as a way to try and limit the greenwashing and misinformation put out by fossil fuel industries. 
You heard that word greenwashing, meaning advertising that includes deceptive or unsubstantiated claims about a company's environmental record. But the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers says advertising is one way it can ensure Canadians know about the progress the oil and natural gas industry is making. The First Nations LNG Alliance has other reasons for opposing the bill. I feel like it's another piece of oppressive legislation, which First Nations and Indigenous people across Canada know all too well. We are finally on a path to economic reconciliation with very many major projects across the country. It directly impacts the Alliance because that's exactly what we do. We promote LNG because of the economic benefits to our community. It's not just rhetoric. We have more housing in our community. We have better drinking water because of all of these benefits that have been coming back to our community. That's First Nations LNG Alliance CEO Karen Ogan. As for the federal government, it says it welcomes Charlie Angus's bill, though it won't say whether it will support it. So wait a second, what are the rules right now? Canada's Competition Act already prohibits false and misleading advertising, but critics say it's not effective. I say Canada is lagging overall. Matt Hulse is a lawyer with the environmental law charity EcoJustice. Citizens basically have to submit a complaint to the Competition Bureau asking for an investigation. The Competition Bureau takes that up and the investigation takes two to three years for a single allegation. And that's basically what I like to call a whack-a-mole solution to what is a systemic problem. The government is looking to overhaul the Competition Act and the proposed changes include measures to prohibit greenwashing. EcoJustice says that would be an improvement, but it wants to see stronger, specific rules and better enforcement. So while Canada wrestles with the thorny issue of greenwashing, other countries are cracking down on advertising more generally. In Sweden, as part of an ongoing discussion about how to change people's behaviour to wean people off the most polluting kinds of activities, Stockholm has just taken the decision on its regional transport system to stop adverts that promote fossil fuel companies and high carbon products, things like big SUVs, that kind of thing. So it's not just banning misleading ads, but all ads for those so-called high-carbon products. It's something Andrew Sims and his think tank, the New Weather Institute, is pushing for. We're running a campaign at the moment, which is trying to introduce a sort of tobacco-style end to adverts which promote climate-damaging and climate-change-fueling activities. And you've also got a book. We also have a book, which is the same name as the campaign. It's called Badvertising. And the book takes a slightly broader look at some of the impacts that advertising has on our well-being and on the way we lead our lives, um, that kind of thing. And I love the subtitle, Polluting Our Minds and Fueling Climate Chaos. Andrew Sims, hello. Hello. So where else have these kinds of bans come into force? Well, in the last couple of years, you've seen a rising number of decisions taken at the citywide level on transport networks, each one a little bit different, introduced everywhere from Sydney, Australia to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Now Stockholm and other cities in both the Netherlands and Sweden are looking at it. And in the UK as well, some pretty sort of large areas like the county of Cambridge, cities like Norwich and Liverpool, they've also been adding these kind of adverts to the list 
lists of things that they will not allow to be shown on their billboards. And the logic there is that we all know we're in a climate emergency now. We're seeing records being broken on heat. Every year we're seeing really extreme weather events which are linked to the warming climate. And the logic of it is that, you know, when you're in a hole, you should stop digging. And it makes no sense if we've got the whole of the scientific community telling us that we need sort of rapid, immediate and comprehensive change. And those words being sort of whispered into one ear. And if in the other ear, you're getting everywhere you go from when you wake up in the morning to going to sleep at night, you're getting adverts telling you, no, there's no problem. Carry on as usual. It's okay to do all these extremely polluting activities. And of course, there is a big precedent for public health reasons, even though it was fought tooth and nail by industry in many countries in the world. We take for granted now that advertising tobacco and, and cigarettes is not a good idea. And we ended that. So there's a kind of a real logic to this being the next step about how we try to find better ways to live on planet Earth. Now, but I, okay, I get the I get the parallels that you see with the tobacco advertising, but I'm wondering why you've decided that this is the right way to tackle climate change. Why focusing so much effort on advertising? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, really. Um, one is it's incredibly ubiquitous. In fact, it's so all pervasive that it becomes almost invisible to us, and that means that constant drip drip effect of pushing and normalizing very polluting products and services is something that has been overlooked. When we ask the question, when we've known about this stuff for so long, why has it been so hard to actually bring about change? Because we're still in a situation where globally emissions are rising. So how are you going to change the kind of cultural paint pot in which we live to stop normalizing high carbon and very polluting ways of living? And one of the ways that you can do that is to stop the stuff which is promoting and normalizing that to us from literally the moment we wake up in the morning to probably the last time we go to bed at night. It's all around us and it's creating a block to the change that we need to know has to happen and that we know can actually deliver some real human well-being benefits if we can get to less polluting ways of living. But, but Andrew, correct me if I'm mistaken, you're talking about advertising in the public space, as you said, on transport, that sort of thing, correct? Well, I mean, personally, I think that is a particular issue because when you're in a public space, you don't have any control over what you see. So when you get advertising thrust in your face in the public space, it's kind of non-consensual. So we think absolutely in the public space. But what but about what about think, the internet and all the private spaces where advertising... Well, no, no, exactly, which is why we think we do need to go further. Because if you're on one of the social media platforms and if you want to have access to places where people share information and you've got adverts which are kind of pushing themselves into your face there as well, we think we need to tackle this issue on all the different platforms where you encounter it. And the important thing to say here is because sometimes when people hear this, they think, oh, you're trying to kind of ban this or, or, or ban that particular product. All we're talking about here is stopping promoting these things. People will still have the option to fly or to drive a particular type of car as long as other regulations kind of allow that. But we're saying that we need to do something which stops it becoming the default for people. 
Your campaign you, you singles out a few industries. You, you've mentioned them, fossil fuel companies, airlines, car manufacturers, but uh, fossil fuels are ubiquitous. Why focus on those three? Well, those things, because they're the really, really big ticket items. It's the sort of thing that if you look at what any individual can do in terms of changing their behavior to make a difference, so hence the fossil fuels companies themselves and the way that we choose to get around, the transport options that we make. Aviation is a really big one. If you take one big long haul flight a year, that's a massive part of your carbon budget. So these are some of the big ticket items. I mean, other people are talking about the carbon pollution that you would get from a big cruise liner and the one other big area. Area, and this is perhaps more contentious, but it's something that people are looking at, is some of the food choices that we make, because we know that some, say, diets which are particularly heavy in red meat are very, very polluting. Um, more plant-based diets, much, much less so. So there are people who are talking about that as an area of interest as well. Uh, let's pull it back a bit more. The huge part of advertising is about convincing people to, to consume more. So what is the bigger picture here? Well, I think the bigger picture here is that we have known for you know more than half a century that we've started living beyond our environmental and ecological needs but we live in cultures in which consumption is constantly pushed as a way to give us a good life to make us feel better about ourselves. Now, in spite of the fact that we've also got decades of research that says that beyond what is actually a fairly basic level of consumption, we know that consuming more stuff doesn't make us happy. We know that other kinds of activities which don't get promoted are better pathways to happier lives. One of the experiences that a lot of people had during lockdown, I found very interesting and instructive when there was a a huge growth of people making their own entertainment, making and mending, getting back to sort of making their own food, making, you know, even kind of making their own clothes and, and, and getting their hands on things in a way which was kind of, and a lot of people kind of cleared out their homes. There was a great sway where people realized that they just accumulated so much stuff that as people were clearing out their houses, giving things to charity shops and, 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 and getting rid of stuff because they wanted a slightly more straightforward, less cluttered life where the quality of experience of how you live your day-to-day life was more important than just accumulating more stuff. So I think people are seeing that the kind of shifts that we need to make, that getting rid of the pressure of advertising is part of, is all part of getting a better and more satisfying and enjoyable life, but also one which puts less pressure on the world and the ecosystems upon which our lives ultimately depend. Andrew Sims, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you. Delighted. Really interesting. Um, And let's hope this conversation grows. As you can hear, Andrew's on a mission to tackle what he calls the bad side of advertising. But now I want you to meet someone who is using the power of marketing for the good of the climate. John Marshall, how did all of this get started for you? I um like maybe many of us, my kid made me do it. <laughs> my, my, my backstory is that I had a 35 year career in the commercial sector, you know, doing marketing campaigns and being a corporate advisor to big companies like Walmart and Starbucks and Bank of America. And uh, my son took a course on climate change and came home on Friday night and 
told me that I was wasting my life selling soap and credit cards. And so he locked me in the house for two days and said, I want you to do something about this. And so it actually uh, propagated a big change in my career. I, I called a lot of my uh, my friends who were luminaries in the, in the marketing business, Madison Avenue types, and said, could we use the skills you know, of the commercial sector to try and sell this really important product, which is getting people to care about climate. And so that was the beginning. We birthed this nonprofit called Potential Energy, which is really trying to take advanced marketing capabilities and try and create demand for solutions to climate change. Well, you've got a smart kid, and let's talk about this some more. But first, John, welcome to What on Earth? Great to be here. Uh, How do you think that messaging around climate change has evolved over, what, the last two decades? I, I would sort of describe it as that there have been a few phases I would say phase one, you know, at the uh, late 90s and through the early 2000s, what I would call the wonkish phase. And so (laughs) we were talking about an environmental problem of greenhouse gases. The scientists and some of the policymakers were dominating the conversation. And I think one of the things that's happened is we haven't been making enough progress. So people have moved from messaging platform to messaging platform. So I, I would describe phase two as, huh, talking about climate change or global warming doesn't seem to be working. Let's go through the side door. Let's talk about the benefits. And so there have been a lot of really good, solid and important efforts to talk about green jobs and economic growth. And, you know, let's let's just not say climate, but let's let's talk about, you know, some other aspects of this, especially clean energy. That still is going on a fair amount. Um, our our testing is saying that it's not as effective as actually going through the front door. But, but there, there's been a lot of energy behind that. Over the last four or five years, we've really come to see the gravity of the problem. And so I think phase three has been the Yale crisis phase. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we moved through, you know, a lot of the vernacular moved from climate change to climate crisis or climate emergency. And there've been big push to quote unquote, declare a climate emergency. We found that that's decently effective with some segments of the population, but a lot of people don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm in a crisis. Yeah, let's go into that. Last summer, you asked nearly 60,000 people in 23 countries whether they want climate action, and if so, what kind of messaging could get them to do something about it. So what what was the key takeaway from that? One was, wow, people really care. When we asked the question, do you think the government should do whatever it takes to solve the climate crisis? We had 78% of people, uh, which is a representative sample of about 6 billion people across groups, 78% of people said yes, and only 10% of people disagreed with that statement. That the slightly less encouraging part of the study was that most people have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about climate change. You know, the decarbonization and the scope three emissions and GHGs and the anthropogenics. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says it's a great day for decarbonization. And so, you know, the, the UN target, you know, for emissions is 1.5 degrees, right? And by the way, in the US, we use Fahrenheit. And so it seems kind of small. <laughs> so we <laughs> Um, you know what the average person on the planet thinks the UN target is? What? Four degrees. We're in real trouble if we hit four I'm so degrees. surprised that the messaging of what 1.5 hasn't got through because it's so, it's everywhere. It feels like it's everywhere. But, uh, you know, one core principle of marketing is it's not what we say, it's what they hear. And, and so I'm just saying factually, right. uh, a really small percentage of citizens know what it is. Uh, but we basically have really learned that we need to do a lot more. Uh, educational messaging on the issue, but the goodness. But how do you do, how do you do that without turning people off? Like people don't want to be taught all the time. So w- what works? What are the messages that actually resonate? Okay, so we tested three messages. One message was 
we're solving it. Look, look how great we're making progress. There's progress here, there's progress there. The solutions are upon us. That was message territory number one. Message territory number two was make the polluters pay. This is a problem uh, that's caused by large polluters. It's their problem to solve. We should, we should force them to do it. And message number three is one that I would describe as generational urgency. We've got to solve this problem because our kids are, uh, you know, our kids deserve a good future. And we've got to solve it because it's an urgent generational issue. And message number three is by far the, the most effective message in every country, in every segment, rich, poor, north, south, rural, urban, men, women, in every single country, we saw that. And when I looked at the data, I said, well, in a way, it's, it's a little bit obvious. And it's also kind of the reason I'm doing this. The actual answer from the data seems to be love. I'm wondering, did that ring true to you, given the fact that someone you loved pushed you to focus on climate action? It's so funny when, when we wrote this presentation, when we, when we did all the findings, you know, what's, what's this data telling us? And then, uh, and then we looked at it and we said, yeah, the answer is love. And then everyone on the team, you know, half a dozen of us who were working on this said, yeah, it's, it's why I'm in it. It's why I'm in it. It's why we're all in it. We're all in it because we care about things other than ourselves. If you think about what's baked into our DNA is caring for the next generation. And I sort of think the way out of the fix is to activate that. So you mentioned um, that messages around job creation didn't work that well. Are there other kinds of messages that just don't work? There's a fine line between emergency and concern. And so when you go into emergency, emergency, the sky is falling, you lose a lot of people. You get what we call in the message testing world backlash, where you actually shrink the size of support among some segments. And then the other one is the political messages, right? Like it's, I think in some countries, when you talk about it in political terms and you bundle it with other political issues, what gets activated in somebody's brain is, oh, it's a policy. It's a Somebody's trying to impose their political views on me as opposed to, well, we're all living in the same place and it's getting warmer and warmer. So when a government says they're going to ban something or phase out or mandate, that that just turns people off. We found that when you mention the word ban or mandate or limit, you get on you get between 9% and 20% less support for climate okay. policy. Let's listen then to uh, the U.S. policymaker in chief, Joe Biden, who's running for re-election. For too long, we've failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis. Jobs. 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 Okay, so that's Biden talking about clean energy jobs two years ago. He also brought in really significant climate policies like the Inflation Reduction Act. Isn't there a place for trying to persuade voters that climate action is actually good for the economy? 100%. And I don't think what I'm saying is that there's not a role for jobs and economic messaging. But what our data says is in aggregate, it's okay, it's smart, and it might be essential to say climate change is risking the things we love and go through the front door. We found it's okay to be real, to be true, and to get people worried about how it's going to affect their life. And what does that do? It gets them out to the polls and it gets them, you know, talking to the 
school board about putting solar panels in the school and it gets them to get engaged. And not that many people think they're going to, you know, wake up and get a new job in clean energy. That you know, people are more concerned about losing their job than thinking that they're going to get a, a new kind of job. So, John, you've done all of this work. You're talking about this constantly. And this was all started by your son's intervention with you. What has he been saying to you about the kind of work you're doing now? Oh, um, I think he's proud of the fact that, you know, we've got a bunch of people who had senior professional careers who have all joined forces. I think all of our kids, um, you know, we like to post our our pictures uh, of them near our computer. So we realize why we're doing it. <laughs> and so I think that's true of the of the 50 people who are working in the company as well. Um, we're, we really are doing it for them. I can hear that in your voice. Um, John Marshall, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Listening to John reminds me of another person who I know had a bit of an epiphany um, about messaging and marketing and climate change, and that is Frank Luntz, who was a a well-known Republican pollster and message maker for the Bush administration, who advised Republicans to start calling global warming climate change because it was seen as, I don't know, less innocuous. And then climate change turned into the message and Frank Luntz changed his mind entirely about what should be done about global warming and climate change and came around to trying to help do the kind of marketing that John Marshall is doing. So Mr. Marshall's not alone. We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there, across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Coming up, homes made of mushrooms? We're exploring the magical world of mycelium in just a few minutes. So remember that extreme cold snap in Alberta just a few weeks ago? Well, our columnist Chuck Odenibo had to endure it. And it was a rather inconvenient time for him, because on a day when it was around minus 50, Chuck had to catch a flight to Hamilton, Ontario, to facilitate a workshop about how climate change affects black communities. So uh, what happened to you as you were leaving the house, Chuck? So I was trapped in my house because <laughs> my door was frozen shut. Oh, I know. What? <laughs> you mean you couldn't turn it? Yeah, on? my doorknob wouldn't turn. It was frozen shut. And I was just like, what is happening? I've never experienced this before. My door could unlock, but I couldn't turn the doorknob. And so I... Then, you know, I forced the doorknob to turn, but then the door wouldn't open. It was still very much frozen. And so I took a hammer and I had to break open my doorknob because I was like, cool, let's get rid of this doorknob and just force the door open. When I broke open the doorknob, I realized my mistake. The um, the latch was still very much frozen solid. And so I then had to like go quickly to the hardware store, buy a crowbar, crowbar my door open. Um, and then I had a flight to catch. And so I duct taped my door. I threw a sock in the hole I just made and uh, <laughs> went to the airport. Oh, my goodness. Were you back the same day? 
No, Al's back four days later. Oh so. my! And 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 as we say, the sock was still in it when you got home. The sock was doing everything it needed to do. It was frozen <laughs> on the outside, kept the house warm on the inside. I was very grateful for the sock, and then uh, called the neighbor, and the neighbor came over and <laughs> helped me fix my door. <laughs> I'm glad you made it to Hamilton. I'm also glad it was it was a really important workshop, and I didn't want to miss it for the world. Well, and I'm glad you're here with us to talk about it now, Chuck. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us some more about this workshop that you did in Hamilton? So, um, effectively, Dr. Ingrid Waldron, and for those who don't recognize the name, she's the same person um, who did the "There's Something in the Water" documentary with Elliot Page. She recently relocated to Hamilton to work at McMaster University, and she's been enacting projects to try and really connect with the Black communities in the GTHA, so Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, in order to better understand um, what environmental racism looks like with these communities, what how climate change impacts these communities, and things that we can do in order to increase resilience of Black communities in these areas, both at a policy level and, of course, at a community level. And it is a three-year project called Building Capacity for Climate Change Preparedness in Black Communities in the Greater Toronto and Hamilton Area. Um, I will say, English names are not sexy. <laughs> it is a meaningful project. <laughs> that is a mouthful. <laughs> so the, the workshop, I understand everyone who attended uh, identified as Black, but can you tell us a little bit more about the people who actually came? Absolutely. So the workshop was only open to about 20 participants. There are two workshops taking place in Hamilton and four workshops taking place in Toronto under the same grant. And so the Hamilton uh, workshop that I uh, facilitated was the first workshop. The next workshop will be in Hamilton in March. Um, And we had a plethora of uh, participants, right? We had participants who were newcomers. And when I say newcomers, I mean, they didn't even have a SIN number yet, like fresh, freshly new. We had folk who, you know, had been in Canada for a while, people who were born in Canada, people of different backgrounds and descents, people who worked in various other different sectors, someone who worked in nonprofit versus someone else who was a student at McMaster versus someone else who was working in a more corporate environment. We had some stay-at-home mothers. So it was really a very sort of diverse group of uh, Black people. What were you hoping to learn from the workshop? The first thing we were seeking to understand is how all the Black communities in Hamilton understand climate change. And then the second thing we were seeking to understand is how do Black communities in Hamilton experience climate change? And and tell me then, what were some of the stories that, that you heard that stood out to you? So I guess the first thing that stood out to me is when we asked people what does climate change mean to them, the majority of people in the room didn't really know what climate change was. And so I'm asking people, well, why did you show up to this climate change conversation if you don't really know what climate change is? And the response I got was, I know it's important. I hear people talking about it. I just don't know what it is. And I want to know what it is. What does that say to you? That says a lot on so many different levels, right? It speaks to the ways in which we communicate climate change. Oftentimes when we talk about climate change, we talk about climate change. And that doesn't really mean much to people because climate change is secondary, right? Climate change speaks to a changing climate. But you've got all these primary problems that coalesce into the secondary issue of climate change. And then you have all the various impacts and effects of climate change and the ways in which they impact different communities. And so climate change is such a large, all-encompassing term that when we talk about climate change, people who aren't familiar with it 
aren't gaining from that conversation because we asked people, what are you hoping to gain from the three hours here? And they said, I want to learn more about climate change. I want to be able to talk to my family about climate change. I want to understand what's going on when people around me are talking about climate change. And so that was powerful, I think. So, so what kind of understanding do you think that they came to over the course of the, th- of the three hours about what climate change is and what it means to them? So once we heard that people were showing up really to learn, we really increased the educational component of the workshop. So we spoke more to what climate change is, how it manifests with different communities, how different identities impact climate change. We talked about how climate change has a greater impact on women than men, how climate change has a greater impact on immigrants versus people who are born here, on uh, indigenous folk versus settlers, right? So we really sort of tried to emphasize the ways in which climate change um, impacts people and how varied they are. And once we were able to do that, we then were able to switch to how has climate change impacted you? And all of a sudden, the floodgates were open. People were talking about, well, the polar vortex, I've seen how it has caused depression in my community because a lot of people in my community are scared of the cold. So they stay home. They're not finding jobs. They're not going out to work. They're not taking risks. But then the downside is they're also becoming more isolated. And as they become more isolated, it's negatively impacting their mental health. Other people were talking about, oh, um, in the summer, there was a really poor air quality in Hamilton and it was really, really bad. And I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know how to protect my kids from that. Someone actually brought up something really interesting. She talked about how the housing crisis in Hamilton um, is linking to climate change, where you know there's a lot of people who are moving to Hamilton, a lot of newcomers, a lot of people of color, a lot of people who are not newcomers, but migrating from Toronto because Toronto is unaffordable. Hamilton is having a, a housing crisis where it's hard to find places to rent. It's hard to find places to buy. Prices are going through the roof. And there was a proposal to cut down some green areas in Hamilton to be able to build more houses. And people were really upset with that. She was able to then directly make the link that people are then going to blame us for climate change because in order to house us, they're having to cut down trees, which is exacerbating climate change. And so it feels like a catch-22. Sounds like there were some real light bulbs going off in the room for people. Yeah, exactly. Those people who attended, do you think that their experiences in Hamilton are representative of other Black communities across Canada? It's always hard to say. So part of the workshop is we had a um, a survival exercise where we imagined that Hamilton was flooded and no help was going to be able to access Hamilton for 72 hours. And so we asked people, group yourselves into communities, give yourself roles within the community. And then what does each person in the community do in order to support the community's survival for those 72 hours while we wait for external help? And what we found really interesting is that the flooding scenario didn't really connect with people. This activity was actually copied from a similar activity that was conducted in workshops in Toronto, where people in Toronto connected very deeply with the flooding exercise. And so what came out of that is we realized that when people think of flooding, they think immediately of, oh, I need a boat to leave my house, that, you know, that kind of flooding. Um, but people don't think about, oh, my basement's flooded. That's a flood. That's you being impacted by flooding. That's you being impacted by water where it's not supposed to be. Oh, um, you know, I'm not able to access this road because this road has flooded, so I'm having to use a different road to get around things. These are things that are impacting people, but they didn't make the connection automatically. And then when we sort of enacted out the scenario, really asking people like, okay, 
you know, you, we've decided that the library is going to be a information hub. And so that's a place that people should be able to go to for information. Then some, one of the francophones in the room brought up the point, okay, I'm francophone in Hamilton. If I go to the library in Hamilton and I'm stressed and I'm stressed for my family and we're there and we're panicking and we don't know what to do, will they be able to help us in French? Someone else brought up, forget the French thing. If we show up and we're black, will they... Will they take us seriously? Will we face racism um, in the midst of a crisis? And then someone else brought up how when the war started in Ukraine, even though people were fleeing for their lives and scared for their lives, they still had time to be racist. Against the black people who are in Ukraine. Exactly. Against yeah. uh, the students of color yeah. in Ukraine, mainly uh, yeah. black folk and uh, folk of South Asian descent. Right. So then what do you think this small group says about not just how informed black communities are about climate change, but how equipped they are to adapt I think this is where we get, you know, very specific to Hamilton. One of the interesting things that came out of the workshop is people were like, okay, I want to know what resources are available for my family. Um, I want to learn about flood preparedness. I want to learn how to put together an emergency kit. And it was very much sort of I, 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 and my family, my family, my family. And at the end of the workshop, we asked people, how are you feeling after this workshop? And they're like, I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like I'm able to protect myself. I feel like I'm able to ensure the safety of my family in the event of a disaster. And what that said to me is, I don't feel like I can lean on community because I have to be able to be sufficient on my own. And with Black communities in Toronto, there was a lot more of that sense of community of here are community resources. You kind of see that disjointedness where in Hamilton, there are Black peoples, but there's no Black community versus in places like Toronto where there is a more sort of sense of community amongst Black people. So how do you fix that? That is the question. <laughs> that really is the question, right? And so it brings about the importance of being able to build community in the in the activism that we do, in the work that we do, in the in the efforts that we make for climate change, right? Because a lot of climate messaging in the past, and sometimes in the present, we see it a little bit here and there, has been very individualistic, right? It's been like, do not fly, do not do this, do not as an individual undertake these actions. And here are ways in which you, as an individual, can protect yourself and your family. And those are valid messaging. But we also need to recognize that when a disaster happens, you need to be able to lean on your on your town. You need to be able to sort of t trust your neighbor. You need to be able to lean on people who look like you, people who don't look like you, right? You need to be able to have support outside of your nuclear family. Um, otherwise, a disaster becomes a lot more isolating. Otherwise, problems become you know, a lot deeper than they need to be. Chuck Odenibo, thank you. Or wait a second. Should I maybe be calling you Dr. Chuck Odenibo? I mean, <laughs> the, someone once told me that once you get a PhD, every appointment is a doctor's appointment. So. <laughs> yes, for our listeners, Chuck just defended his PhD th thesis last week and he passed. Congratulations. Thank you. It has been a long and arduous journey. And I just want to like throw a shout out to everybody out there who either is in the PhD program or knows someone who's finished a PhD. Call them doctor, because I promise you the trauma they got to get those two letters in front of their name. <laughs> call them doctor. <laughs> All right, then I will. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, 
let's talk about magic mushrooms and climate. No, wait a second. Let me try that again. Let's talk about mushrooms, or maybe more precisely, fungi, and I know some of you pronounce it fungi, that are like magic when it comes to climate. From potentially filtering the air, to storing carbon, to greener construction. Researchers at the University of British Columbia are exploring new ways these seemingly lowly organisms can be literal building blocks used in construction. And one kind of mushroom is leading the way. Oyster, I think, is our favorite one. And I think in general, this community of people who make biofabricated materials and engineered living materials, oyster is probably the most popular one because we know it's edible, so there's no known toxicity. Two, it grows very fast. That's Nicholas Lin. He's an engineer and a postdoctoral fellow, and he's looking into how the fungi can become what's called engineered living materials to replace things like concrete or steel, which are really carbon-intensive. And he's working under the supervision of associate architecture professor Joseph Dahman to create just the right recipe. These are composed of the roots of mushrooms, which are mycelium. And what we do with them is actually make a mix of mushroom spores and sawdust. Now, if I've got this right, as the mycelium grow, they consume the sawdust, creating a bond. So mushrooms could be a very useful building material. But Nicholas and his team are also trying to figure out if a mushroom home can help clean the air. If there's a lot of smoke from wildfires, could they recognize that there's smoke and they produce more of these fibrous, fuzzy materials and they'll capture this particulate matter that is the smoke. Right? So it might be able to clean your, your homes if you have a mushroom block or part of a mushroom furniture or something like that. There are a few building projects underway in other countries that are using these spores, mushrooms, mycelium, as part of the construction materials. One affordable housing project in Oakland is replacing polystyrene foam with it. The company behind it boasts of its sustainability and its ability to be a carbon sink. Joseph believes that since buildings are responsible for 40% of global carbon emissions, it's an exciting time for fungi. And so being such a large share of that suggests that it can be a big part of the solution as well. These engineered living materials are the kind of paradigm shift that we probably need to really get on the right side of this question in the next decade. Okay, let's hear about another way that mushrooms can be climate magic. Hi, Katie. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? Good. Now, Katie Field has a cartoon posted in her cramped office, and it reveals two things about her. One, she has a sense of humor, and two, she really, really loves all things mushrooms and fungi. Yeah, uh, my students really like this. I have it on my door behind me, and it's, uh, two mushrooms, one saying, you can do it, and the other one says, I believe in you, and it's captioned, morale support. You get it? Morale support? Okay, all joking aside, mushrooms, or fungi, are her life's work, and that in itself surprises her. I never set out in life to study fungi, and yeah, I, I guess as I progressed in research and stuff, I just kind of found that fungi were really interesting, and then... When I found out how important they were for kind of the whole evolution of the planet and even the atmosphere that we breathe, 
Um, it's kind of hard to go back from that. I kind of didn't look backwards. <laughs> so it's a bit of a love affair. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, before we get into these climate facts about fungi, can you just let our listeners know who you are? Sure. I'm Katie Field. I'm a professor of plant soil processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK, um, where I research mostly about the interactions between plants and fungi, particularly interested in what the fungi do and how they do it. Now, you were recently a co-author on a study. Tell me what you found out about mushrooms or, or more to the point about whether connected to underground. Sure. So the type of fungi that we were interested in for this paper were the mycorrhizal fungi. So mycorrhizas are a big group of fungi that live in the soil. They're pretty much invisible to the naked eye, Um, but they actually form these really important and intimate partnerships with plant roots. And what we did in this study was we looked at uh, more than 200 papers that have been published, so other people's experiments, and we looked at how much carbon the plants were transferring to the fungal partners in each of those different studies. And then we added it all up together, basically, and came up with an estimate for how much carbon was in the biomass of the fungi um, at any given moment in time. And the number that we came up with was kind of extraordinary. um, And it it, it was way bigger than we thought it would be. Um, But it, it roughly equated to the same amount of carbon present in fungus as is present in uh, a third of the global emissions from fossil fuel burning. That is a big, big chunk of carbon. It Uh, really is, yeah. Why were you surprised by that? I think it's the scale of it, isn't it? I mean, we were just astounded by the sheer scale of the numbers that we were coming out with. And and it was, you don't, we don't tend to think of fungi, especially these ones, because we can't see them. They live in the soil. It's kind of an invisible presence underneath our feet. And for them to hold that much carbon in their biomass at any given point in time, um, I think it's kind of incredible. I'm just going to pause for a second here. You might have heard of Suzanne Simard, the University of British Columbia professor, who argues that these underground networks of fungi also help trees communicate with each other. Other scientists claim the evidence for that is scarce. But Katie Field says what is clear is that these underground networks store carbon. Fungi do store some carbon in the form of lipid droplets within their own tissues. That's fat, isn't it? Lipid droplets? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so little oily droplets that they store in um, these special organs within them themselves. But perhaps the greatest store of carbon in terms of fungal biomass is the fungus itself. So the cell walls and everything, the whole biomass of the fungal body, I guess, um, is made up mostly of carbon. And so when that fungus is growing, it's constantly building more carbon and and storing it as biomass. The thing is with that sort of carbon, though, is it it turns over quite quickly. Um, And other microbes in the soil, they'll eat the sort of decaying fungal biomass. um, And then they can respire that carbon back out into the atmosphere. So much going on underneath our feet. So the carbon may not be stored in the long term. And when you're thinking about mushrooms, it's worth thinking long term because fungi actually help create the atmosphere that has allowed all forms of life on Earth. I always get a funny look from people when I say that (laughs) because they kind of can't quite believe that something as almost inert looking as a fungus has had such a dramatic impact on how Earth is developed. But if we go back sort of 500 million years, we would be looking around at a, a planet entirely devoid of plant life. 
but somehow these plants came onto the land. They emerged from the water um, and they got a foothold on land and then they grew, developed soils and became forests and, and so on and so forth. It's kind of widely accepted now that fungi played a really critical role in this, in forming those partnerships I was talking about before, the mycorrhizal relationships with the earliest plants and helping them access nutrients from this sort of barren landscape um, in return for carbon that the plants were fixing from the air via photosynthesis. And in doing that, they've kind of helped plants evolve to become more complex, to grow bigger, more sort of physiological complexity. And with that, the demand for CO2, so carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that the plants need for photosynthesis increased. And basically they, they sucked more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. As plants got bigger and they did more and more photosynthesis powered by mycorrhizal fungi, they emitted more oxygen until eventually we, a breathable atmosphere developed. And here we are today. And here we are, exactly. But w- then what about tinkering with the fung- fungi to allow them to suck down even more carbon? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And, 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 you know, people think about it. I don't know how tractable it is to try and increase the amount of carbon that a fungus is taking out of the atmosphere via a plant partner. So there's lots of things we can do to encourage the growth of mycorrhizal fungi, particularly in ecosystems where um, the soil is managed. So things like agricultural landscapes. So by using less sort of disruptive methods in agriculture, for instance, you can encourage a much greater biomass of mycorrhizal fungi to grow, which in turn will help your plants grow bigger, do more photosynthesis and draw more CO2 out of the atmosphere. Are you talking about more regenerative farming then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so quite many of the practices that are inherent in a regenerative farming approach are very fungus friendly. Um, so no tilling um, or direct drilling. Also mixed planting, so offering the fungus a kind of more of a, a, a smorgasbord of hosts, if you like, <laughs> um, so they can pick and choose where they're getting their carbon from. And as the different plants in that mixture, they have different life cycles, so some will be giving up more at different times. It increases the supply of carbon to the fungi below the soil. We know so much more now. You're finding out more. It's being used in building materials. It's being used in medicines. How much more do you think there is for us to understand about these these creatures, these fungi? Yeah, I think there's so much we don't know about fungi. We're really only just starting to scratch the surface. I think there's a really, in equal parts, horrifying and wonderful statistic where there's sort of about a million new species of fungi or something out there to be discovered. It's like a ridiculous number. Um, and every year we're discovering thousands upon thousands of new species of fungi. And if we don't even have a handle of what's out there, how can we possibly have any inkling of what they're doing? <laughs> yeah, and I get that because you think the horrifying part is when people start thinking about the series like The Last of Us and <laughs> these deadly yeah. fungi as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope we don't have any of those no. to be discovered, right? <laughs> let's let's just enjoy the fungi for what they can do, inclu- yeah. including being delicious food on our plates. <laughs> Absolutely. Katie Field, thank you so much for this peak underground. No worries. Thank you so much. We've got some time now for some other climate stories in the news this week. BC's snowpack is down 40% lower than normal, and that's causing concerns about severe drought throughout the province this summer. 
That, combined with the lingering effects of last year's drought, could affect farming, salmon spawning and wildfire. And there are still close to 100 wildfires smoldering from last year's record-breaking wildfire season. There's still time for more snow to accumulate at higher elevations, but seasonal forecasts are calling for above-average temperatures through April. Something else that's lower this year? The number of endangered monarch butterflies that winter in Mexico. It dropped by 59%. That's the second lowest level since record-keeping began. The annual migration of the butterflies from Canada and the United States to Mexico and back again is considered a marvel of nature. The conservation director for Mexico's Commission for Natural Protected Areas blames it on the effects of climate change and pesticides. A jury has awarded climate scientist Michael Mann $1 million U.S. after finding two writers defamed him. Mann sued the two men for comparing his depictions of global warming to a convicted child molester. Mann's graph of global temperatures resembling a hockey stick as they raced upwards was met with some skepticism. He was falsely accused of manipulating data. One writer accused him of molesting data the same way a jailed child sex abuser manipulated his victims. Another writer then endorsed those views. The case has been watched closely as online misinformation about climate change grows on social media. The new president of British Petroleum, or BP, says he plans to increase the corporation's oil output. Murray Auchincloss was confirmed as CEO in January. His predecessor began a shift toward renewables, but then refocused on fossil fuels before leaving the company. BP said last year that it walked away from 1.1 billion U.S. dollars in investments in offshore wind projects along the east coast of the United States. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. I want to let you know about a story we're working on. Peter Kalmas has watched with horror as climate-linked disasters have struck one community after another over the past few years. The American climate scientist's frustration and grief spurred him to civil disobedience. He chained himself to a bank in Los Angeles in 2022, risking his job at NASA to draw attention to the problem and quell his own anxiety. The CBC's Susan Ormiston visited him at his home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, We'll hear about his activism and the essential action he says is needed to secure humanity's future. That's coming up on What on Earth? And you can also watch Susan's interview with Peter Kalmas on a special episode of The Fifth Estate. It airs on Friday, February the 16th. Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. We read all of them. That is it for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wilson, and Catherine Rolfson. And special thanks this week to David Ball and Jake Costello. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.